It's a good name, Billy Keegan said. My partner hated it, Skip said. Fucking Kasabian, he said it didn't sound like a saloon. Sounded like some kind of candy-ass boutique. Some store in Soho sells toys for private school kids. I don't know, though. Horseshoes and hand grenades, I still like the sound of it. Horse shit and hand jobs, somebody said. Maybe Kasabian was right if that's what everybody would have wound up calling it. To Bobby, he said, You want to talk about the different sounds they make, you should hear a mortar. Someday, get Kasabian to tell you about the mortar. It's a hell of a story. I'll do that. Horseshoes and hand grenades, Skip said. That's what we should have called the joint. Instead, he and his partner had called their place Miss Kitty's. Most people assumed a reference to gun smoke, but their inspiration had been a whorehouse in Saigon. I did most of my own drinking at Jimmy Armstrong's on Ninth Avenue between 57th and 58th. Miss Kitty's was on Ninth just below 56th, and it was a little larger and more boisterous than I liked. I stayed away from it on weekends, but late on a weekday night when the crowd thinned down and the noise level dropped, it wasn't a bad place to be. I'd been in there earlier that night. I had gone first to Armstrong's, and around 2.30 there were only four of us left, Billy Keegan behind the bar and I in front of it, and a couple of nurses who were pretty far gone on black Russians. Billy locked up, and the nurses staggered off into the night, and the two of us went down to Miss Kitty's, and a little before four, Skip closed up too, and a handful of us went on down to Morrissey's. Morrissey's wouldn't close until nine or ten in the morning. The legal closing hours for bars in the city of New York is 4 a.m., an hour earlier on Saturday nights, but Morrissey's was an illegal establishment and was thus not bound by regulations of that sort. It was one flight up from street level in one of a block of four-story brick houses on 51st Street between 11th and 12th Avenues. About a third of the houses on the block were abandoned, their windows boarded up or broken, some of their entrances closed off with concrete block. The Morrissey brothers owned their building. It couldn't have cost them much. They lived in the upper two stories, let out the ground floor to an Irish amateur theater group, and sold beer and whiskey after hours on the second floor. They had removed all the interior walls on the second floor to create a large open space. They'd stripped one wall to the brick, scraped and sanded and urethaned the wide pine floors, installed some soft lighting and decorated the walls with some framed Aer Lingus posters and a copy of Pierce's 1916 proclamation of the Irish Republic. Irishmen and Irishwomen in the name of God and of the dead generations. There was a small service bar along one wall, and there were twenty or thirty square tables with butcher block tops. We sat at two tables pushed together. Skip DeVoe was there, and Billy Keegan, the night bartender at Armstrong's, and Bobby Rustlander and Bobby's girl for the evening, a sleepy-eyed redhead named Helen. 
and a fellow named Eddie Grillo, who tended bar at an Italian restaurant in the West 40s, and another fellow named Vince, who was a sound technician or something like that, at CBS television. I was drinking bourbon, and it must have been either Jack Daniels or Early Times, as those were the only brands the Morrissey stocked. They also carried three or four scotches, Canadian Club, and one brand each of gin and vodka, two beers, Bud and Heineken, a cognac, and a couple of odd cordials. Kahlua, I suppose, because a lot of people were drinking black Russians that year. Three brands of Irish whiskey, Bushmills and Jameson, and one called Powers, which nobody ever seemed to order, but to which the Morrissey brothers were partial. You'd have thought they'd carry Irish beer, Guinness at least, but Tim Pat Morrissey had told me once that he didn't fancy the bottle.